Welcome to Evidence and Answers once again. Hi, I'm Tony Solis, alongside with our host, Mr. Pat Zucaran. How are you doing, Pat? Hey, doing great, Tony. We've got a great guest on. Yes, this gentleman, uh, his latest book, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, would like to welcome to the show uh, Mr. Kirby Anderson. Thanks for being on the show. Well, we're glad to be part of that, and um, I've been in Hawaii and know about uh, many of the political battles that you've been dealing with in this particular issue. And uh, Kirby is a national known syndicated talk show host. He's been here to the Hawaii Apologetics Conference. He's written a lot on this area, and current issues of the day uh, point of view is where you want to go and look at the articles that Kirby's written there and also at probe.org. So it's great to have Kirby with us. Kirby, you know, we've all uh, seen in the news that don't ask, don't tell. The ban on gays in the military is being lifted by the United States Congress and many people are saying, well, what's the big deal? What kind of impact is it going to have? But indeed, it is going to have quite an impact on the military, won't it? Well, I think so. And Pat, I think it's important to focus on the fact that, first of all, when you talk about the military, it is different than civilian life. And I don't need to tell people that live in Hawaii how important that is because, you know, you're around military people and you recognize that uh, us as civilians enjoy freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of association. That's certainly what uh, is part and partial of our constitutional rights. When you go in the military, you give up some of that. I mean, you can't necessarily always speak freely about what you think about your commanding officer. You aren't always uh, given opportunities to uh, have uh, some kind of uh, decision about who you associate with. And uh, military force is different than civilian life. And this is really, in a sense, the conclusion that has come from this commission that has sat down and asked various individuals in the military what they think of lifting the uh, military rules and the compromise which was instituted by President Clinton, don't ask, don't tell, and they really came back with a fairly negative report. Well, because of that, the Congress, which was at that time made up of a number of people in the Democratic Party who wanted to bring about a change, recognized that if they didn't push through some kind of change and don't ask, don't tell, in the 110th and 111th Congress, the next Congress, which would be the 112th Congress, probably would not pass it. So this is one of the reasons there has been a push. And we can get into all the details, but the bottom line is that sometimes when you implement a policy, the people that are going to be most affected by it are going to probably be the people you want to consult. And that is, in this most recent commission, uh, there have been a couple of officers that have said they don't think it would cause ma major disruption, but the majority say that it could cause real problems in terms of unit cohesion, recruitment, and the rest. That's why a lot of people have felt that the recent decision to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell was ill-advised. Well, Kirby, what do you think will be the ramifications of allowing openly gay military men to serve uh, men and women serve in the military. And again, there's a real debate, Pat, about that, because some have said that you already have a de facto policy like that. A good example is, is that uh, the individual who was in the military who was responsible for actually providing some of the material that was promoted by WikiLinks, who himself was a homosexual, uh, made it very clear in his Facebook and other places that he was lamenting the uh, loss of his uh, lover. You know, I think they just parted ways. And so it, I think, was a good illustration that here we already had individuals who were supposedly 
supposed to keep their sexual orientation quiet, and he felt quite free to share that in the Facebook. Uh, and there are others that have served in the military who have uh, made it pretty clear where their sexual orientation is. So in some cases, the military officers already have had sort of a de facto policy where they say, look, if they don't make a big deal about it, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. We already need all the soldiers, airmen, and Marines, and everyone that we can get. So we'll be glad to uh, simply turn a blind eye to that. So there are some that are suggesting that we've already sort of had a de facto policy that was, in a sense, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. However, there are others that are saying, well, now that you do actually remove the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, and you remove from the military regulations that those with homosexual orientation cannot serve in the military, that this might encourage people to be more flamboyant about their sexual orientation, more upfront, maybe more in your face. And if that is indeed the case, then that's what there is a concern that was expressed by many of those in the commission, that this would uh, lead to all sorts of different kinds of actions in the military that would not be good for unit cohesion, that there would be individuals, once they start seeing this, would be less likely to re-enlist. There would be less others that would want to enlist in the military. And since we have a voluntary military service right now, that could actually damage in very dramatic ways of the military in the 21st century. You know, Kirby, having read a lot of the medical reports and also your work on homosexuality, it's clear that the gay lifestyle, uh, gay men, uh, and women have, generally speaking, multiple partners in their lifetime, and that you know creates a great danger of the spread of STDs, especially AIDS, which is quite prevalent in the gay community. Would that carry on over into the military? Well, again, you have to understand that some of the patterns that people have in civilian life are patterns that they would also follow in military life, if that's the case. And there's an if to that, obviously that indeed that is the case. I mean, people have already made it very clear on my radio program that, well, we already have trouble with heterosexual promiscuity in the military. We already have a problem with the proliferation of pornography in some of the military bases. We already have a problem with people being sexually irresponsible. So uh, you're taking a problem that uh, many people recognize already exists and making it worse. Now back to your point, whether we look at it in military life or civilian life, we do recognize that homosexuality and heterosexuality are very different. I have a section of my book about whether or not heterosexual couples and homosexual couples are different, and uh, it doesn't uh, take very long to begin to look at everything from the gay, lesbian, consumer online census to uh, various research that has been published in the Journal of Sex Research or even the survey of the social orientation of sexuality, all of which, by the way, are secular, even in many cases pro-gay types of organizations or research, which in every case point out that you are talking about multiple partners. You're talking about a level of sexual promiscuity that is much greater than you see in the heterosexual world. So I do believe that if indeed those patterns, which we have identified for many years, well-known inside the gay community and not, um, if those patterns that exist in the civilian community continue in the military community, I think that makes a great deal of sense. You know, Kirby, some will argue, they'll say, well, Alexander's armies proliferated with gay military men, and it was a great outstanding army, so really, what's the big deal? 
Well, first of all, you could use Alexander, you could use the Spartans, you know, and first of all, there were attempts by those to say, let's put together those individuals that have at a spree de corps that uh, gay kind of lifestyle, that aggressiveness, and that that might make for a very significant fighting force. Well, that is a little different than putting people that are openly homosexual in the same showers with people that are heterosexual. So obviously, first of all, you've got a difference of situation. Second of all, let's be honest, one of the things that we value in our military in the 21st century and certainly have valued for some time is the issue of order and discipline. Many of those successful military campaigns were carried out by people who we would consider to be barbarians. So it doesn't necessarily translate, but at the same time, there is a little bit of an apples and oranges situation in which we are talking about having homosexual men and women integrated in with heterosexual populations. That is not exactly what we are talking about in terms of some of the fighting forces of ancient Greece, for example. Curry, uh, we know that before you know Clinton took office, um, th- there was, of course, homosexuals in the military, uh, heterosexuals that led a promiscuous lifestyle. Now, I guess a, a, a very important question is, having gays in the military, will that strengthen our military or actually weaken our military? Well, again, some of that remains to be seen. But again, the commission that uh, came out with their report tended to believe that in a number of different levels, unit cohesion, which is one, recruitment and reenlistment, that there would be problems. Now, time will tell. Uh, we have a society that uh, emphasizes tolerance. Sometimes you and I have talked about before tolerance at the point where we don't even necessarily make moral distinctions. But if indeed we see that uh, some of those problems surface, then it says it would make the military weaker. Now, the counter argument is this. Well, we have homosexuals that have served with distinction in other militaries, the United Kingdom, for example, or many of the Scandinavian countries. And I would say, first of all, that may be true. We'll leave that on the table and even concede the point. There is a fundamental difference between uh, the Army of Finland and the Army of the United States of America. We are a superpower. We are uh, engaged much more than any other army in the world and in the military in the world, when you talk about Army, Navy, Marines, Air Corps, Coast Guard, and everybody, in much more dangerous, much more significant military campaigns than other countries. So, again, even if you concede the argument, and I will just for the sake of argument say that maybe that's worked well in an Army in Europe, it does not necessarily apply that it's going to necessarily work as well in the United States. And so, again, there are a lot of people that have raised, I think, reasonable questions as to whether or not this is going to be the best way for us to deal with the very significant threats that we face in the 21st century with a military that in some cases represents a social experiment uh, that is taking place right before our eyes. Yeah, because, you know, I, I take a look at um, what it says in Romans, how God has given them over to a debased mind. And so, meaning that there is an inner conflict that is taking place with that, that individual, and they will get worse and worse and worse over time, being given over to that debased mind. So, wouldn't that be looked upon as it will weaken our armed forces because of the inner conflict uh, and how God has given them over? 
one of the things I've found when we've been talking about this, if you go back to the first military that we had in this country, George Washington, he made it very clear that uh, there were certain behaviors that uh, were not acceptable. And he recognized in the 18th century that they were going against the greatest military power of the time. And so he not only banned things like um, homosexuality, but he banned even things like profanity because he wanted God's blessing upon the military. There have been some debates about what happens if somebody was a homosexual in the Revolutionary Army. In most of the cases, they were just drummed out of the Corps. They weren't executed or anything like that. I mean, there are a lot of myths that go around with that. But he was saying that we need moral people in the military and God's blessing will come upon it. Now, if you go back to Romans 1, you go back to other passages dealing with homosexuality, then it seems to me that if we want to have a moral fighting force, we have to call for that. Now, again, we live in a society today that says, well, we're just going to turn a blind eye to a person's sexual activity. So today you have all sorts of rampant uh, promiscuity among heterosexuals. Uh, homosexuals are coming back saying, look, you're allowing all them to be um, promiscuous and profane, and uh, you allow pornography on the military bases, so why not allow us to join it? Well, to me, that's not a compelling argument. I think when you go back to Romans 1, the more compelling argument is if we want to have a fighting force that ultimately honors God and uses force effectively and is a moral force in the world, it seems to me that we would want to have a fighting force that does not allow the promotion of homosexuality. You know, the don't ask, uh, don't tell. Do you believe it's just another way of covering sin? And some people have thought about that, uh, because ultimately the military regulation said that a person who's homosexual cannot serve in the military. That's the actual regula regulation on the book. And I might just point out, Pat and Tony, that one of the big question marks that people have is with the so-called repeal of don't ask, don't tell, it's actually a repeal of the Clinton compromise. It's not really a repeal per se about the military regulation, although the implication is that since it passed the House and the Senate, that's exactly what's going to take place. But in a sense, yeah, it's sort of like a cover for sin, and it's a way in which I think we have today a policy that was put forward as a compromise in large part so that the homosexual lobby could use that for their justification because the long-term implication is not how many homosexuals are going to serve in the military. I don't know how many homosexuals we have in the country. The percentages range from 2%, 3%. We're not talking about a lot of people. Uh, there isn't this massive number of homosexuals um, knocking at the doors wanting to serve in the military. The ultimate goal here is to actually provide one more step of legitimacy so that uh, whether it's civil unions in Hawaii or same-sex marriage in Massachusetts or whatever it might be, that might be justified. And you notice that right after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the first thing that was mentioned was now if homosexuals can serve in the military, and thus can carry a rifle, why can't they have a ring on their finger and marry their same-sex partner? So you can see that the goal wasn't so much to get all sorts of homosexuals in the military, because that's still a fraction of the people that are serving in the military, but the real ultimate goal is to actually achieve an agenda, and that is the complete legitimization 
of homosexuality. You know, Kirby, you bring up a great point that if it can be legitimized in the military and serve as a public example, then it's going to have further implications and a further impact on the U.S. culture and our nation here. That's a great point that you bring up. One of my questions is, what accounts for the success of the gay agenda? Well, that is something I talk about in my book, and it's something I've watched uh, not only from afar, but close up. As I've shared before, I think even on your own program, I had an uncle who was a homosexual in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my wife dated a boy who later died of AIDS. So when we talk about this, it isn't like we don't have personal experience. We have quite a bit. But in the late 1970s, two individuals actually wrote a book called After the Ball, Kirk and Madsen. Now, interestingly enough, they wrote first the article, and actually technically the book came out uh, in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, and it really set forth a number of principles that they had, and that was to talk about homosexuality, to portray gays as victims, to give uh, homosexual protectors a just cause, to make look uh, victimizers look bad, and on and on and on. They had quite an agenda. And what I find so interesting is, is if I ever encourage people to read the book, they go back and say, that was the agenda in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And now, nearly 20 years later, we have seen how it was effective. And it was effective because they were able to marginalize anybody that would be critical of homosexuality, they were able to make homosexuals look like victims, and they were able to gain various allies, both in government and in the corporate world, uh, to change the cultural perception of homosexuality. And so, as a result, even in the state of Hawaii, we're seeing the kinds of debates that were taking place just a few years ago in places like, say, New York and San Francisco. And I think it's illustrative of the fact that a small group of individuals dedicated to a particular principle can oftentimes have a greater impact than even their numbers might suggest. You know, I'm, I'm looking through your book, and by the way, it's a great book. And for those of you uh, listening today, um, you got to pick it up. A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, again, by our, our speaker uh, today, Kirby Anderson. But, you know, for those of you do, who do not have the book, you know, I'm just going to take one of the questions here from your book. What about teens and homosexuality? What should we know about that? Well, the part of the problem that teens are facing is, first of all, they're going to a school, most likely, that is already in one way or another promoting it. It may not necessarily be promoted directly, although certainly that is the case. Uh, when you look at some of the schools, you can see that they have programs like a GLSEN and um, various other programs that are really dedicated in large part to promoting homosexuality. Listen is the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, and I might point out that the person who started that is now serving in the Obama administration in the Department of Education. So mm. you can see that we're not only talking about a movement on campus, but we're also talking about policies being enacted right now by the former founder of Glisten. Then you have the Gay, Straight uh, Clubs, and there are about uh, 3,000 or more of those around the country. So the typical teenager, first of all, is growing up in a culture that is saying, well, you can be a heterosexual, you can be a homosexual, as a matter of fact, you could be bisexual. And so in the midst of this, there's probably a fair amount of gender confusion. I think any listener right now that's been a teenager can remember that during your teen years, you know, hormones are raging and there are all sorts of questions in your mind. And 
Um, maybe there are certain kinds of feelings that you have. And so in the midst of all of that, teens really need to begin to come back to uh, you know, some of the biblical principles that we really talk about and recognize that they may be sold a false view of human sexuality, which is a political view, which is being promoted on the campus by many of these groups, and they'll have a day of silence, and they'll have gay straight clubs and all sorts of things mm -hmm. that uh, in many cases can cause them to say, maybe I should experiment with different kind of sexuality and try to figure out who I really am. And in the midst of all that gender confusion, I think the political agenda has been achieved. You know, Kirby, I haven't been hearing very many strong voices presenting the other side against homosexuality, especially on this whole debate of don't ask, don't tell. Have you heard of any, and if not, why are there so few? Well, there are a few, and first of all, you pay a heavy price for doing so. Um, just the other day, had uh, Joseph Farah, who is the founder of WorldNet Daily, and he was talking about how he's being pilloried in the press by some of the things he said about same-sex marriage. Probably the most uh, prominent uh, speaker on this issue of don't ask, don't tell from the other side, as you put it, would be Elaine Donnelly of the Center for Military Readiness, who has been an individual that has actually served uh, on various commissions in the Department of Defense and certainly has followed that. And you've had various other Christian-type organizations, whether it be the Family Research Council or Focus on the Family or some of the family policy groups and things like that that have addressed it. But I think, first of all, to answer your question, why is there are so few? Well, it's a, you pay a heavy price. Right now, the mainstream press will criticize anybody as being intolerant and bigoted for saying some of the things that I've said here. Second of all, I think we have kind of this culture of tolerance where we just say, well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with what that person is practicing, but, you know, I'm supposed to be tolerant in this politically correct culture, so I won't say much about it. And so we find ourselves today with uh, not maybe as many voices out there. But again, as you pointed out just a minute ago, you can do a Google search and very quickly find that there are various organizations that have given very good and reasonable answers and arguments for that, but they're necessarily by definition, because they're excluded sometimes from the mainstream press from having a chance to express your point of view, they're a little more difficult to find, but they certainly are out there. Yeah, you know, with the, the media today, uh, shows like even Glee, where they do uh, push a homosexual agenda, a promiscuous life agenda, I mean, it's, it's really widespread, you know, um, even being a number one rated show on television, I mean, um, it's... It's definitely attacking our youth. Now, um, taking it a little bit on the older side, we're going to hit the colleges. Now, how is homosexuality in college doing their agenda? Well, again, you, that would just be something very similar where you now have all sorts of different programs that uh, are available. And whereas in the high schools, there are obviously going to be some limitations, a GLSEN or a Gay-Straight Alliance are going to have to be somewhat limited because, after all, you're a captive audience when you're in a high school. By the time you get to the university, all bets are off. Now all sorts of gay groups are there. They engage in all sorts of different kinds of activities. Various professors in classes uh, ranging from psychology to anthropology to sociology, 
allow speakers to address those issues. They have gay pride weeks and all sorts of things. So again, as you send your child off to college, one of the things you have to recognize is if you thought some of the gay agenda that you saw in the high schools was bad, recognize now in the college there really are no major limitations. And so as a result, mm. a lot of those kinds of ideas about homosexuality and the promotion of it take place in most of the major universities. Well, Kirby, you've given us a lot of great information. And as we need to wrap up this show, Kirby, I want to ask you, what can we expect in days to come regarding this issue of homosexuality? Well, I think we have a big question that we have to ask, and that is, whether or not people that uh, really hold to biblical morality are going to assert their convictions or whether they're going to lose out. You have to recognize that the younger you are, the more likely you are to be tolerant of homosexuality. And I want to be tolerant of the person, but not of the activity. And so we certainly have to recognize that if indeed the trend continues, it will be a matter of attrition. You know, take enough time and eventually there will be even more acceptance of open homosexuality. By contrast, though, it seems to me that Christians should still be balanced in their perspective in which they love the homosexual but hate the sin. And so it seems to me that we as Christians sometimes struggle with how we do that in an effective way. But if we aren't uh, able to articulate our views carefully and we can't win over the culture, then I do see a greater influence and maybe even impact of the homosexual agenda in the 21st century. Folks, you've been listening to Kirby Anderson, the National Director of Pro Ministries. You can listen to this full interview at evidenceandanswers.org and also listen to other interviews we've done with Kirby Anderson on a number of cultural issues of our time. And Kirby, we're going to continue this conversation with you next week. So Kirby, thanks for being with us. Thank you. On behalf of Evidence and Answers, I'm Tony Solis and with your host, Pat Zucaran, we wish you aloha and we'll see you next week.